Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Biblical Frame, where we're looking at current events from a biblical theological perspective. If you joined in with us last time, we talked about the topic of truth, and we're actually going to resume that topic today. Uh, my name is Ed Gerber. I'm hosting the podcast today, and with me I have Ivan De Silva, who is a lecturer at Trinity Western University, and Stephen Dunnings, who's a retired English professor, Jens Zimmerman, who is a professor at Regent College, and Bruce Walke is with us once again today, a retired Old Testament professor and author of many, many books. And I had asked Bruce if he was willing to start this podcast off with a bit of an anecdote from one time when he was preaching in Vancouver, and he has kindly agreed to share that story because it is dear to my heart. Well, well, it's not dear to mine. First Baptist uh, had asked me to uh, preach in one sermon the doctrines of revelation, inspiration, and illumination. And that's a pretty big order for one (laughs) sermon. And I thought, you know, when I hear sometimes theological lectures, I find them kind of boring, it's all abstract. So I thought, well, how could I get across these three doctrines in a story form? And it dawned upon me that the story that we've referred to of Balaam and Balak and Balaam and his donkey illustrated all three doctrines because uh, Balaam can see what the king of Moab can't see, and God puts the word of God, puts the word in his mouth. So it had everything I wanted in the story. So... uh, the secretary called me up on the Tuesday before I was scheduled to preach, and she said, what is the title of your sermon? And I hadn't thought about it, but she needed it because they were preparing the bulletin. So on the spur of the moment, I said, well, okay, we'll call it Balaam and, 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 and Balaam and his donkey. Uh, yeah, Balaam and the donkey. And... Uh, is that right? Say? No, it was the talking donkey. Oh, the talk. That was your was. title. I, the title of it was. Yeah, I knew something was wrong. It's Freudian. I don't want to tell the story. Yeah, Balaam <laughs> yeah. and the donkey. No, the talking donkey. Yeah. So I got to the church down on Nelson and Barad, and you know that's a pretty big bulletin there. And I see on the bulletin the talking donkey colon. Dr. Walkie. <laughs> and I think, my first, thought was, my first thought was, isn't that the truth? My second thought was, good thing I said donkey. <laughs> so. uh, Jens, can you follow this up? <laughs> you've uh, you've prepared some thoughts that we're eager to hear, and so I invite you to share those sure. uh, with our audience. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Um, yeah, I want to talk about the nature of truth a little bit, and uh, it's not as good as the donkey story, but if you <laughs> see what's happened to truth in the pandemic, you don't know whether you want to laugh or cry. Um, so one thing that happened, of course, is a massive concerted suppression of truth by the mainstream media. We talked about that, you talked about that in the in the prior session, um, and we still are experiencing a level of censorship uh, on social and mainstream media 
of proportions known previously only, I think, under communist or totalitarian states. Um, and then this mainstream conformism is also accompanied by tribal or cancel culture that should frighten anyone interested in open dialogue. And, and uh, Dr. Walkie had already mentioned how important dialogue is for finding the truth. Um, you know, uh, truth is something that's discovered, and the critical exchange, as we've said, of different opinions is essential for truth-finding, open debate, and so on. Yet precisely this dialogue is continually suppressed. And, and Ed mentioned in the earlier section, you, you mentioned how scientists with top credentials, indeed world-renowned authorities on virology, epistemology, immunology, and vaccinology, have argued convincingly against a lot of the corona measures, lockdowns, masking, and so forth, uh, and mass vaccination, but their voices have not been heard. Uh, the dialogue has not, been taken, has not taken place. So anyone interested in truth should ask why this kind of thing is happening. And another thing that we've seen, which I want to focus on, during the pandemic, is people's kind of giving up on discerning truth, right? Um, and I found there's sort of two groups, at least in my experience, and you can see how, what you think about that, um, that resigned like that, uh, gave up on finding the truth. And the first was those who simply bought the narrative hook, line, and sinker, um, succumbed to fear, and decided then not to bother with trying to understand the growing factual contradictions and often nonsensical measures imposed by health bureaucrats, right? I mean, we've all seen that. So people in this group then simply entrusted themselves to the health officials and often combined their obedience then with a strong sense of duty or even self-righteousness and virtue signaling for doing my part. And then the second group, which is to me more interesting, they gave up on truth. Um, that those were those trying to be discerning, but they were frustrated at the overwhelming amount of information. Um, that was out there, and the contra contradicting scientific authorities. Um, I'm sure we met people who said, how can I know what is true when I can't tell misinformation from true information? And many in this group then eventually threw up their hands and out of resignation decided to go mainstream. I've literally, I've heard people who, who said, you know, I just gave up thinking about it. I just went along with it. Um, so we give up on finding out the truth. And that to me is the more interesting phenomenon because this group raises the question of interpretation. So they raise the question famously asked by Pilate, what is truth? And you recall the moment in John's Gospel, Pilate asked Jesus who he was and what he was up to. And Jesus replied, and I'm quoting here, um, for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. This is in John's account. And Pilate's response was the cynical question, what, what is, is truth? truth? Right? Pilate, of course, was a politician. And his question expresses his conviction that truth is subject to political interests of power. His own situation, in fact, if you know the gospel, with Jesus was a very good example. Pilate, as we know, found no reason to condemn Jesus said this repeatedly, but in the end he had to bow to the will of the mob in order to avoid confrontation with his superiors. Truth, Pilate would say, is a matter of interpretation, and whose, interpreta whose interpretation wins out is a matter of power. But that is a very cynical, a very functional definition of truth. So I'm, I want to look at a little bit of what truth is like. Maybe we can get at this by looking at this example, so Pilate's view is really the same as giving up on truth altogether. 
But giving up on truth is really giving up on our humanity because I think God made us to be truth-seeking beings. It's just something in us, I think in our freedom uh, from nature, that we want to put things together in a meaningful way, right? I mean, normally that's what we do. Beasts do not, but I think we do. Um, so this question, what is truth, that lies at the heart of much of our current political predicament. So do we have to despair of knowing the truth? What is truth? How does truth work? How do we know things? What role does authority play in knowing the truth? Those are all questions, I think, that crystallized during the pandemic. So let me just um, start by giving a definition of truth. And this won't be too long, I hope. Um, so Pilate was right to say that truth is a matter of interpretation. But he was wrong to, to assume that interpretation means that truth is merely relativistic or subjective, and therefore decided by the most powerful. So when we discern truth, we do indeed interpret. So what does it mean to interpret? Interpret means that we take the details of what we see or perceive, and we integrate these details, these parts, into a meaningful whole. Human beings, I think, as I said, are just made this way. We, we need to do this in order to be fully human. We are meaning-making, interpreting animals. And we call this meaningful whole that we want to integrate things into, by which we live and direct our lives, we call that truth. And the Bible tells us that we need to live in truth, right? Truth is not just a propositional fact, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a more a greater context. So human beings are created to live in truth. And so the most fundamental and profound definition of truth derives from this basic existential fact of our human way of being. So, uh, Dr. Walke got at this already in his initial remarks in the, in the first session. There's this ancient definition of truth that is also assumed in biblical literature that is essentially reliability, mm. right? Uh, truth is the solid ground we can trust and depend on. The uh, philosopher Hannah Arendt once defined truth like this, we could define truth, she says, conceptually as that, what human beings cannot change, and therefore you can stand on. Metaphorically speaking, she says, truth is the ground on which we stand, which does not shift, and the sky that stretches above us, which we cannot change. Another way of saying the same thing is to define truth as integrity. So, and I like this definition of truth, which comes out of the ancient world and which we've changed, I think, in modernity and post-modernity. Um, so, so what, for instance, is a true chair? A chair is true and has integrity when all of its parts hang together in a way so that it doesn't collapse when you sit on it. So, in short, something is true in the deepest sense when all of its parts hang together to form a sound, reliable whole. And this is also true of reality. So again, in ancient wisdom literature, including biblical wisdom literature, these texts are based on the idea of truth as integrity. The wise person lives according to the grain of the universe, or as Christians might say, according to the inherent dynamics of God's creation. In this reality, God made in this reality the creation that God made, people flourish when they live in accordance with the principles grounded in the truth of life itself. So I want to connect truth to life. Um, for us human beings, the totality of life is the totality of our relation to God, to others, and to the world. 
our biological bodies, our relation to other people, our relation to God, at least in a biblical Judeo-Christian sense, all taken together, that's what life is, right? And to live in truth means to live in a way in accordance with the total dynamic of life. So wisdom texts like Proverbs are based on this very principle. The wise person lives in resonance with how reality works according to the intrinsic dynamics of creation. Proverbs, don't hang out with evil people or you will come to harm. That's a paraphrase. Or be loyal and faithful and you will find favor with other people. Proverbs 3.3, 3, for instance. The connection between wisdom and then truth is this. The wise person lives in truth. That is, the wise person puts the parts of reality together into a meaningful whole that corresponds to the truth of reality. And so, in his response to Pilate, if you remember, Jesus said he came into the world to testify to the truth. In fact, Jesus claimed nothing less when he said this than being truth itself. And we know this from other passages. I am the truth. And so I take that statement not as some kind of a reference to you believe in me and your inner life will be good, but I take this to mean that Jesus really wraps all of this wisdom and Proverbs stuff around himself. I am the Logos, the wisdom, the truth, in whom all things hang together. So when Jesus says, I am truth and I am life, he is really claiming nothing less than that he is the heart of reality. He is the integrity of reality. He is what makes reality reliable. He is the heart of creation, the, who, the one in whom all things hang together, as we know from Colossians. So Jesus then tells us that truth and life are intrinsically connected. And by life, Jesus did not mean simply some inner spiritual reality. His raising up of the dead during his life and his own resurrection demonstrate that by life, he means biological life in the fullest possible sense. So, what does all of this have to do with truth in the so-called COVID pandemic and the COVID measures? For me, very simply this, the public reaction of COVID or to COVID is based on an incredibly narrow, misleading, unrealistic, and ultimately unbiblical notion of truth. In reacting to COVID, health officials, politicians, and the media have promoted what I want to call a scientific, a very narrow view of truth that no longer looks at life as a whole, as the ancient world did, but looks at life through the microscope of the scientist working in the laboratory. Of course, this is not a new development. In Western cultures, we have been trained over the last, let's say, 400 years to replace the ancient wisdom that truth encompasses the total reality of life We've replaced that with a scientific view that truth is only what science establishes as verifiable fact. And in addition, we have also been trained to believe that true knowledge about reality is the result um, of theoretical scientific reflection. This is not how the ancient world thought about truth. We've been trained to believe that theory founds reality and establishes knowledge. In reality, however... As wisdom literature assumes, we already know reality because we negotiate it every day. And the principles and wisdoms that tradition give down to, hand down to us are these kind of insights collected over the ages from people you know, who are not looking with microscopes, but with common human understanding uh, at the principles of life. 
And we know, for instance, what water is like or what a successful life is long before scientists slapped the chemical label H2O on water or before sociologists defined what it means to be happy, right? I mean, so the Bible then teaches what most people in the ancient world intuitively grasped. We live in truth when our lives respond to reality as a whole. The reductive scientific view of reality we have become used to throws out this total view of life and focuses only on one tiny biological or mechanical aspect in isolation, and then blows this aspect up as if it was all important. We have seen the devastating results of this reduction. Take the example of health. From an ancient or biblical perspective, health defines the whole of a person's well-being within the total context of biological and social life, like all my relations to the world, to God, and to others. Health is not the is not only the whole rhythm of our life is rooted in the biological activities of our metabolism, breathing, sleeping, uh, dependence on the environment, but health is our entire social life, our relations with others, and our entire perspective of what, of what is desirable for us to be healthy. So that is the truth about health from a holistic perspective. Now science comes in and views truth um, and that's the kind of view that controlled the pandemic reaction, focuses only on the affection by a virus. Health was reduced to this single focal point. The lockdowns were implemented to stop viral spread. Never mind, as Doug told us earlier, that that wouldn't have worked. My point is that the single focus was to eliminate, to eliminate infection by total isolation. That was the point. No consideration was given to all the other harms such lockdowns would cause because science only sees this one thing. We paid no heed to the cries of those elderly, for example, who would rather die from COVID than no longer see their grandchildren or their loved ones. We've talked about churches who embraced vaccine passports and divided the body of Christ rather than risk infection. If we want to move beyond our current political impasse with the pandemic measures, I think we have to recover this wider view of truth that is rooted in life, that the ancient culture and biblical literature suggests to us. So we have to move away from this narrow scientism to a wider notion of truth. And for Christians, this means we should go back to this notion of wisdom and crisis, the heart of reality in whom all things hang together. So Christians, for me, should be the first to, to you know, realize this and to go this way, rather than just fall into the narrow scientific kind of spectrum of truth. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I thought that would be a discussion starter for us. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot there to go off. <clears throat> it reminds me of Frederick Beekner. Did you think of Beekner too? Beekner said, uh, you know, Pilate asked, what is truth? And it didn't stay around enough to hear the answer. Um, the truth was standing in front of him. Mm. But reactions... I was just thinking that um, it's. I was thinking about Dante's Divine Comedy, and I was thinking about one of the ways that you can read um, what's going on there. As Virgil, this is particularly in Inferno, but it it works through Purgatorio and Paradiso. What Virgil is in effect doing is he's teaching Dante how to read reality hmm. and how to get his life in order so that it doesn't work against the grain, but it actually fits in. And, and it is. It's mm. Virgil's taking him on this hermeneutical exercise to get him in line. So I think that's very true. I also think that um, 
There's a tremendous hunger for somewhere to stand, as you say, and for truth. Um, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Jordan Peterson, and whatever you may think of him and his politics, uh, I'm not really talking about that point. When he was asked which of his 12 rules for life was the most important, he said, tell the truth, or at least don't knowingly lie. Mm -hmm. And I think that that message is at the heart of what appeals to so many people about him, that here is someone who, who is willing to, uh, to look at the truth, to go where it takes him, and, uh, and to pay the price. And he certainly has paid a very heavy price in his life. But I think that that desire for truth is something I sense running very deeply in the culture. And it's unfortunate that it took someone who is really, as we might say, standing in the narthex, if not really out on the street, has to school Christians about this. Mm -hmm. But that's just a thought there. Mm. What came to my mind is that we believe there is truth. And um, post-modernity doesn't really accept that. And so assumption behind it all, and because it's true to humanity, we all seek meaning. And to have meaning, you want it to be, be grounded in reality. So... Um, so those who despair, I think it's important that they not lose a sense of valuing there is absolute truth and it is possible. Okay. But um, the other thought that comes to me is in wisdom literature, uh, I find one of the most profound epistemological sections of the book of Proverbs is uh, Agur mm. in chapter 30. And he is looking for wisdom in that chapter. And so he is searching for wisdom, and he's been educated, and he says, I don't know wisdom. I don't have this wisdom. And, um, I don't, and he puts that together. To have wisdom, you have to have knowledge of the Holy One. And then he goes on to say, uh, who was there when uh, about the, um, the 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 heights of the heavens? Who who comprehends all the heavens and the depths? And what he's driving at is we cannot have absolute truth. We cannot have sir. We cannot have comprehensive knowledge. Therefore, we cannot have on our own absolute truth. Therefore, he says that uh, the Lord, you made it all, and you know it all. And then he talks about the Son, which in, this, uh, in Proverbs is the disciple. And it's for the disciple to know truth in the light. And then he says, every word of God is upright and pure and trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So what the point is, you have to have only God knows the whole thing. And therefore, you have to, if you're going to have any truth or reality, the only one who has it is God. Right. And if God hasn't revealed himself, we cannot really ultimately know reality because minds can't get there. Mm -hmm. We need revelation. 
And that's going to take a spirit that convinces us. And then he composes his Proverbs within the light of the reality of other scriptures. But it's totally consistent with scripture. So I think um, that may tie in with... um, In the Reformed tradition, as you well know, there's a distinction between special revelation and general revelation. And you have the same thing in uh, Job 20. You have the three, actually, you have three passages that deal with this epistemology and wisdom literature. One is, I think, the Iger 30 is is crucial to it. Job 28. The other one is Job 28, where can wisdom be found? And it's hidden from us. And it's uh, hidden even from the birds of the air because they could see everything, and they don't have it. And the depths of the sea, they haven't found it. So where is wisdom found? Well, it's found in the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord is revelation. The fear of the Lord is equated with Torah. And it's what he was saying, that truth is living it out. Mm -hmm. And so, fear of the Lord is the objective revelation of God, and you're living it out and integrating it in life. That's uh, part of what you were helpfully, I found, I found a wonderful discussion, but at any rate, uh, profound, really. Uh, so, those were some of my responses to it. So, Bruce, would you say that general revelation, or Jens, that general revelation, that is to say, what we can know to be true of God in the creation, but also what we can learn about the creation itself is dependent on the reliability of God himself. That's right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's right. Yeah, that's well right. Said. But I would also say, I mean, God, because we don't, as Christians, or, you know, as a Jew or a Testament person, you don't talk about nature, you talk about creation. Of course. And so God has made all of these things in a way that um, that runs in a certain way, right? I mean, for this reason, we have turned that into mechanism, which it is not. Uh, it's much more complicated than that and much more profound than that. But it is something that has inherent principles in it, I think, on which wisdom literature picks up and says, you know, do these things, don't run against the grain of these things, um, and so on. There's hell to pay, I mean, maybe ultimately, but also in terms of um, just what will happen to your humanness uh, when you don't do that. But we as Christians and as a good Jew would know this is all because God has made it that way. But it has every human being inhabits this creation, and therefore it is not as if only um, you know Jews and Christians or Muslims ticked by this. But I mean, every human being, if they paid attention, you know, we could go some ways in leading a successful life. If you just adhere to the problem with the knowledge that we now champion, the kind of scientific knowledge, is it's severed like objective knowing from life itself, right? I mean, this is a longer story, but it's really interesting if you think about it. I mean, of course, uh, life itself, biological life, is based on on objects that move, on molecules, on particles, on these kind of things, on mathematical constellations, one to each other, and so on. And that's all science, like verifiable experimental science can really look at. But if taking that one dimension, which is only a tiny part of what human beings, how we experience life, and they've blown that up into, like, that's everything. That's that's what true facts are. So that, I mean, we all know this, right? So that, um, you know, kissing kissing on your first date, I mean, that's just a chemical reaction. Like, that's just biology. And that's everything gets reduced to that. And that's hugely problematic. And it's a tragedy. And the tragedy about postmodernity, to pick up on what Bruce was saying, is that, as the Bible tells us, without an ultimate metaphysical 
framework, which is provided only by the special revelation of God. I mean, others may be groping their ways toward it in other religions and so on. I mean, that's at least that's sort of Christian conviction. Um, without that ultimate framework, there's no pur- like the, the purpose of life isn't clear. And the tragedy is that post-modernity, when you, I mean, I've studied this for a long time, when you, um, I'm not saying it's an entire waste of time, um, when you take it at its most uh, or this best impulse, it's an ethical movement, right? I mean, postmodernity wants to say that we've used, in the Enlightenment and, and other places, we've used these grand stories, these narratives, uh, to pretend that we have certain truth. We know exactly how things are. Mm. And so we've lost our humility here. Yeah. Uh, and then postmodernity goes too far the other way and says there's nothing at all. And therefore, every truth is relative, right? But the imp- there's an impulse of ethics, and the tragedy is, you can't actually have ethics without having an ultimate story and an ultimate framework, right? And so, I think what, what Bruce keeps saying is very important that as Christians, we are given this framework in trust. We don't possess it, and we have to live it out as a risk, trusting to God and His revelation. So, we can't march in there with sort of triumphalistic, you know, well, we've got it all figured out, and we've got the truth, and I'll beat you over the head with it. And if you don't like my version of it, then <laughs> out you go, right? Um, no, yeah, but there's but we we have this sense that we're living in a life that is created with sense and with meaning, um, and therefore we have we can have a certain trust in that, and I think that's really been lost, which is goes back to what Doug Allen said in the first session: some commonsensical things that we used to know, and that science worked out from the principles of life in terms of immunology, prevention, and things like that. They were just thrown overboard, rewritten, overturned. Because we focused on this one thing, and we simply gotten rid of life and the way our organisms work, like with natural immunity, for instance. You know, I'd so. like to um, throw in a, a little, a little uh, another aspect of this that will be a counter a bit. I think partly is that they saw it as a matter of life and death, and life. I don't think it was. I think you, you, what you're saying is right, science, and certainly that is the material, that's the mindset, as everything is science. But nevertheless, I, th- I would kind of agree that you don't have anything without life, and that has to take priority. And I think that's part of what was driving this agenda, is if it's going to be like the bubonic plague, which they feared, then there, it's the end of human life, and there's nothing. Uh, so I, I think that may be brought into discussion as well as a prioritization, yeah. as a, a qualification. Yeah, and and I think that's right. And I I would give officials about, uh, as Dark said, about three to four weeks to mm. figure that one out. Yeah. Because after that, it was very clear that it wasn't a bubonic mm. plague. Yeah, um, and then it became something. Uh, that is astou- that is interesting to me, because at least from my view of the scriptures and my faith, is that life isn't sacred, but the person is. Mm. Right. So, yeah, well, um, yeah. because once once life itself becomes sacred and for the sake of life, yeah. in a raw sort of sense, then you revert to some kind of a pagan notion, right? Yeah. That life is sacred, yeah. Yeah. and it can become totalitarian. In the name of life, you destroy people. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I agree that, I mean, if, if a politician who is responsible and has a sense of responsibility, if you're faced with 
these figures that were generated by computing models, right? We know the Imperial College model, which was way, way off base. But so here you're, you know, let's say Boris Johnson, you get on your morning desk, you know, this could mean 50,000 dead. You've got to do something. Like, I get that. You know? So, yeah. So I would like to ask uh, <clears throat> throughout this question, since we're talking about revelation and um, we cannot depend on our own finite minds uh, to know absolute truth, we have to depend on God's revelation because he sees everything from the beginning to the end and has the totality of it in his view. In that, from that framework, how do we look at this entity of the coronavirus? Uh, what I'm trying to get at here is, and I don't know if I, don't know if I can articulate it properly, is um, we know that, it, that, that this virus is a type of life. It's a creature. Um, obviously, it has been given its life uh, by God. And uh, perhaps Bruce can uh, reflect on this. It, um, how do we fit this organism into God's world? Is it the same as, for example, he's created lions, and lions kill people. And um, they are dangerous animals. Uh, they're, not as, they're not as many, I suppose, as you could get a coronavirus. But there are these dangerous creatures that are out there, and um, they, are, they are, now whether this is a result of sin entering the world or even before, they are hostile to life, and yet God has given us a creation in which he, he manages these two aspects, the dangerous aspects as well as the, uh, what could you say, the cosmos as well as the chaos. So how do we think about this? Should we fear it in the way that we have been told to fear it by the, our governments and all of these, all of these um, uh, official sources? Or do we put our trust in God that um, he, the, the virus is under his control and yes, it may attack uh, uh, some people, and take them, but that's really still not cause to fear. I grappled with this when I was exegeting Psalm 104, in which the psalmist praises God that the lion cries out to God, um, metaphorically, in prayer for its food. And God gives the lion its prey. And the same thing is true of the raven. And this whole food chain that I intuitively react to negatively of killing, yet it's clear this is God's design. And each is looking to God for its food within the food chain. That's it. And I was, uh, a friend of mine was writing a commentary on Psalms, and he asked me to critique his commentary. And he said, it's a lovely picture of how God feeds the raven. And I wrote back, what, what about the little worm? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not a, a lovely picture to the little worm. And so, and I... I, I read a biography of Alexander von Humboldt. And uh, von Humboldt, he lives about 
1775 to 1850 in there. And he was the first one that, who was an adventurer, and he's the first one that brought to the scientific community of the world the ecology and how everything works together. It all coheres together. And he marveled at the he marveled at the coherence of it all and how it all worked because he was living in the jungle. He was one of the first to explore some of the rivers of the Amazon and became well aware it was a whole survival of the fittest. And he, the Kaiser Wilhelm, at that time in his generation, said, this is the greatest man that ever lived because he saw it holistically and saw this whole, and it was his student, I forget his name, Heinz, wasn't it? His student was the first one that came up with the word ecology, that understood that the whole ecosystem, economy of it, worked together as a unity. So, yes, it all ties in with it, but I also see that we have to have compassion on the animal. It brings out something in us. And I think COVID also brings out something good in us as well, how we've responded to it, because we glory not only in just salvation, we glory in tribulation, because it works virtue into us, so we don't use God. So maybe, I think it's a provocative question, and the whole life supportive system, as you can hear, I, I'm not comfortable with it, but I praise God for because that's how it works. And I don't see that as, he, he doesn't fault it as a result of fall or human sin. That's just the way it is. And, uh, so. Well, in Psalm 104, um, you have the bounding of the chaotic waters, as it were. There's a, cre- there's a reflection on the creation narrative, it seems to me, in Psalm 104. Very much so. And God takes that which is chaotic, and that's he bounds it, yeah. chaotic, and he bounds it for the purposes of life. He, he draws it down and through it becomes rivers and streams. Um, I think there's a profound meditation on how God bounds that which is a potential source of chaos and transforms it. It, it almost becomes a type of Christ, a type of the gospel. Um, well, I see that very clearly in Job 38, uh, where uh, Job was faulting God, and we could fault God for this whole life cycle. Mm. Where were you? You don't have the comprehensive knowledge again. That's right. And then the solution to it is he doesn't explain the mystery of that which is contrary to life. It's a mystery. Mm-hmm. But you have sufficient reason to trust because it's all bounded. Darkness is bounded by light. The sea is bounded by land mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I was going to... Uh pivot to a completely different Please. thought. I, I, I often thought about the lion lying down with the lamb, and I wondered what was going to happen with his teeth. He was going to have to have and a lion with the molars for eating you know, hay is going to be quite different. Mm. Anyway, that's just a separate thing. Excuse me. But I was thinking that, you know, if we go right back to uh, why uh, well-meaning people especially Christians who care about the truth, should have been alerted that there were problems. Just think about the number of inconsistencies, pivots, and contradictions that took place in the narrative, in the policy, and in the statements. So the thing is, unless you've got a memory hole, like they do in 1984, anyone with a memory could see that there were obvious problems. 
that should have alerted people at least to start on the quest, right? To start on the quest to try to find things out. So there's really not much excuse for, um, for being comfortable with the narrative. I have other friends who say, just follow the money. Uh, that's part of it too. But, but I'll, I'll, anyway, uh, so that, that's just it. People should have at least become alerted to the problem that they're, to, to the fact that there were problems that people either didn't know what they were talking about, so they were ignorant, or they were mendacious and they were misleading people. Those were really the only two options at a certain point. Uh, and I agree that they initially they probably were well-meaning. Um, so I think people should have uh, been much more on the alert um, and a lot more courageous. And I think we haven't talked enough about courage. Mm. Uh, it takes a lot of courage for people to really stick their neck out. Um, okay. But here, here's a question, because I agree very much with what Bruce was saying about none of us having infinite wisdom. We simply don't, or, or, or the truth. Uh, and I was wondering what you thought about this. Do you think well-meaning, intelligent Christians, courageous Christians, who have the moral, the moral qualities that one needs to pursue truth, do you think that they could come up with genuinely divergent positions? On this, is there a place for not just difference of opinion, but difference of opinion from people who were really looking into it and who had the moral qualities that we need to pursue it? And, uh, and still come up with my suspicion is that the answer to that is yes, but that over time, and here you're going to hear the Kierkegaardian and me coming out. I think that over time, if people committed themselves and their lives to pursuing truth, that in the end, God will bring them to a place of unity and truth. But that in the process, it could look pretty messy. And that's what I suspect. But I think we need a lot more people willing to, uh, willing to put themselves on the line. And I think, I think, that's I think you're one driving at something extremely important. Mm-hmm. In Ephesians 4, uh, keeping the unity of spirit until we come to the unity of doctrine, which assumes we don't have a unified doctrine, which is truth, as we understand it. And the trouble with the churches, and it's just, to me, maybe this is another manifestation of it, that we're political animals. And because we're uncertain, we get certainty through consensus. Therefore, we bludgeon the other person or demonize the other person I think for psychological reasons. And therefore, we want unity and we're not willing to live with reality. We do differ. Mm -hmm. And that was fundamental to me in my spiritual growth, that you don't have unity of doctrine before you have unity of spirit. You have unity of spirit so that we can come to unity of doctrine. But the church has taken doctrinal positions of debatable issues and been dogmatic, and I suspect we're doing the same thing with just another manifestation of our seeking consensus for psychological certainty rather than simply trusting God and doing the best we can. And that's all we're asked to do, Mm -hmm. to be honest and and to speak truth and grow spiritually through the process. I think that's the value of this. Mm -hmm. I think Speak that's why God allows it, so that we will be purified. Yeah. 
in the process. And I find that in this discussion. It's purifying to me. Mm. I think that's right. And I think that's why we should... I think that's absolutely true, that we try to procure unity through politics, right? Rather than knowing that we're united in Christ first. Right. And so whatever we might differ on should never split the church. That's right. But we've That's done. Right. We've gone the opposite direction, um, and again, that throughout goes, our history, yeah, and and in the last two years, I think, right, mm-hmm. and that goes back to our earlier. So, what motivates that fear and so on, perhaps, but certainly uh, a departure from, as you put it, union with Christ, spiritual unity comes first, and should keep us united. And it's a lack of faith. It is I a mean, lack I of think faith, at right? At its and, heart, yeah. it's a. We don't trust that. Christ is the reality, well, and that, that he, he will bring, bring about us, it. And also, exactly. Yeah. Yes, and that exactly. he will bring us to truth. Exactly. That if we're honest, that we can grow, yeah. But without honesty, that's problematic, right? And that's, I think, where the tension is, because, you know, as Solzhenitsyn puts it, you don't want to live a lie. Like, none of us, mm-hmm. like, if you put the situation out there and you try to put the pieces together, which is step one, uh, going back to your thing, Stephen, like... I wonder why some people did not even care to want to put it together. The incongruencies. Like that to me is, that's what the freedom of the human being made in God's image is. Like you drive towards truth, you want to be in truth. Like if there are differences, I may be able to let them sit for a while, but if it becomes too stark, I've got to put this together somehow. I need some kind of coherence. Uh, not, not a perfect system, but you know, things need to sort of make sense. And if you give up on that, then you may as well just, live like an animal in a way, right? Just have people tell you what to do, move left, move right, without questioning. Uh, so, so we don't want to live a lie. We want to have integrity in our social, political truth constructs out there. But I think, in some ways, the spiritual unity in the body needs to, to counterbalance and, and really come first in some ways, right? So how do we create in the church a space for that dissent, for those differences, while being united, Well, and at what point, I think it's just for our listeners, it's very important for the clarity of our listeners to identify at what point are our differences making a difference that matters. So we will often say, you know, um, we'll live in unity despite our differences. And we do some of those things on certain issues, infant baptism versus dedication. I don't think the church should be split over these kind of things. Historically, we have on um, eschatological perspectives, but at what point do we say, no, the unity has been fractured, the spirit of Christ in some ways? So people would say, for example, that when it comes to our position on human sexuality in the church, that this is a dividing line. Bruce, what do you think about that? I think that's true. I think when the scriptures are very clear, the points that we've differed on is because the scriptures Credo versus Fidio baptism, for example. Uh, uh, Pedio baptism versus Credo baptism. I think I can make a case both ways for either one. Right. <clears throat> we have not been div- we have not been united since the Reformation on the sacraments, if you can call them sacraments. We have not been united on either baptism or the Eucharist, how we understand it. We have not been uh, united in eschatology about less things. We have not been united about charisma, the charismatic. Does it still prophesy? Are there still gifts there or not? 
There have been so, and we've not been divided on. Uh, we've not been united on polity, whether uh, a, a Episcopalian or Presbyterian or Congregational. And I've, we're not united, I think, because the scriptures are not dogmatically clear. Mm. Because if it was absolutely clear, we would not be divided. So therefore, we are in agreement that it is according to Scripture. It's, but on this matter, uh, for, for I don't know how, I mean, where do you put in COVID with Scripture? We're looking for truth, I mean, and so forth. That's where it fits into it. But we got different data coming at us and so forth, so I think we need to have charity. And, yeah. and not essentials, this goes back to, what was his name, Mel the 16th century charity in all things but not in essentials and where are the essentials so and and one of the calls is to have this discussion and that's been something we haven't been good at with COVID-19 it has been politicized from the beginning and in the church we tried to have it at my church conversation and it did not go well um, because people immediately became very emotional and I do think one of the things that we're dealing with is people very early on uh, allied, aligned their identity with a particular perspective. And once you do that, the psychological defenses are erected, and it becomes very difficult to hear um, other alternative it's perspectives. It's, it's pride. pride. That's the problem. It's pride. We haven't died to self and esteem others better than ourselves. We made a commitment here that we were going to try and keep it to 35 minutes. I um, have seen that hand go up. And uh, so, what I'd like to <laughs> so what I'd like to do is just read a little portion of Rod Dreher's book, "Live Not by Lies," and then I would invite uh, concluding thoughts. On the day of his Moscow arrest, February 12, nineteen seventy-four, Alexander Solzhenitsyn published what would be his final message to the Russian people before the government exer- exiled him to the West. In the title of the exhortation, he urged the Russian people to. Quote, live not by lies. What did it mean to live by lies? It meant, Solzhenitsyn writes, accepting without protest all the falsehoods and propaganda that the state compelled its citizens to affirm, or at least not to oppose, to get along peaceably under totalitarianism. Everybody says that they have no choice but to conform, says Solzhenitsyn, and to accept powerlessness, but that is the lie that gives all the other lies their malign force. The ordinary man may not be able to overturn the kingdom of lies, but he can at least say that he is not going to be its loyal subject. Quote, we are not called upon to step out onto the square and shout out the truth, to say out loud what we think. This is scary. We are not ready, he writes. But let us at least refuse to say what we do not think. For example, he says, a man who refuses to live by lies will not say, write, affirm, or distribute anything that distorts the truth will not go to a demonstration or participate in a collective action unless he truly believes in the cause, will not take part in a meeting in which the discussion is forced and no one can speak the truth, will not vote for a candidate or proposal he considers to be dubious or unworthy, will walk out of an event as soon as he hears the speaker utter a lie, ideological drivel, or shameless propaganda, and finally will not support journalism that distorts or hides the underlying facts. That's the end of journalism today. (laughs) (laughs) Final thoughts. 
Well, I, I'll start. I'll keep it simple. Um, I think for Christians anyway, uh, God holds our life. Christ is life. So if we're in Christ, we should not let fear of death or loss of control over our lives interfere with the unity of the body. You know, in, in a way so that because of this kind of, you know, as Bruce put it, uh, you haven't really died to self. You, you still want to control your life. You still are fearful in those regards. All of that is somewhat understandable, but at bottom, I think, if there's no fear of death because of the cross and we're in Christ, then that can't be a criterion for sacrificing the unity of the body. And the second word I have is, um, you know, for truth's sake, let us return to a holistic view of, of truth that is based and rooted in life and not continue to fall for the sort of scientific, narrow, um, you know, focal view of truth that, that is, has invaded the church and that we've all fallen into in, in Western cultures, which makes science the expert. So follow the science. It's about the dumbest uh, life maxim that we could have come up with, and yet that's the mantra that's dictated a lot of this pandemic. What I come away with uh, as well as a, a new appreciation of Christ, who is truth. And he embodies it in all of its living, thinking, behaving, and he really incarnates. And, and so I've been encouraged again to be sure my life is rooted in him and in all discussions, uh, it's his spirit, his reality that will find expression in my expression. I'd say be courageous. Don't be afraid to seek the truth. Don't be afraid to speak the truth. Trust in God. Get yourself out there. Find out where it leads you. I have a quote, uh, Kikago, that <clears throat> my wife gave to me, and you might recognize this quote. There are two ways in which to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. So what is true for me in this case is the fact that the coronavirus, just like all the chaos elements, is under God's sovereign, majestic control. It cannot do anything to humanity that is not bounded by allowed, permitted by God's will and God's purposes. Just like we respect and we, um, we are careful with the lion, but we do, not, um, we do not fall in fear of it, we should do the same thing with the coronavirus. We believe, we fear the Lord, God who controls everything and not the coronavirus. Let us live in that truth. My, my final thought comes from the fourth gospel or the gospel of John. Jesus is said to come in grace and truth. And those who saw him said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only 
who comes from the Father in grace and truth. In John's Gospel, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples just prior to his arrest, he says, now is the time for the Son to be glorified, the Father to be glorified through the Son. Jesus' supreme moment of glorification is when he is lifted up on the cross. The lifting up is a moment of supreme glory because it reveals the truth about God, and this is the truth, and this is the hope, is that although this is what we do to God when we get our hands on him, we put him on a cross, God transforms that moment in order to save us and demonstrate the depth of his love. We put God on a cross, and from that cross he says, I love you still. Come home. This is our hope. And this is the greatest truth that a Christian has. It's the gospel. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you for those of you who are listening. Stay well, and may the peace of our Lord be with you. Amen. Amen.